All right, so brothers and sisters, when you are ready, if you could please stand as able. And again, it's Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word for us. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. All right, brothers and sisters, we are beginning a new sermon series called Metanoia, Everything Changes, and that's what that word means. It means change, right? It is the, the, uh, the Greek word that we normally translate as repentance, but what it really means is change. And brothers and sisters, change is something that I think a lot of us want. It is something that gets dangled out to people's lives. And, you know, uh, politicians offer it. Uh, almost every politician will offer you change, right? You know, change you can believe in, right? Make America great again, whatever it may be, right? I've never heard a politician say, you know what, this is my platform. Everything's fine, let's just keep everything the way it is. <laughs> and maybe part of the reason for that is because we all suspect, we all know that life is not how it should be right? There are things that should be changing. There are things that should be getting better. But the funny thing about change is that even though we all want it, do we really want it? There are times where maybe we don't. You know, I think the church has been uh, accused of being sometimes too conservative, too unwilling to change. And it reminds me of a a joke that I once heard. (laughs) It's kind of cheesy. Just want to warn you. Well, it's actually a series of jokes. It's uh, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? That's why we have these minions up here trying to change a light bulb, right? Um, and so it's actually a series of jokes. And usually what you do is you point out different kinds of Christians, different kinds of denominations, and the differences in how those people might change the light bulb. Like, for instance, you know, like our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, you know, who believe in like predestination, free will, uh, free, uh, not free will, <laughs> predestination, free will, <laughs> God's will, right? Uh, above all. And so how many Presbyterians would it take to change a light bulb? None. God's going to do it on his own, Ooh, right? It's, um, or how about this? Uh, do, you, do you know like what a charismatic Christian is? Like, like charismatic is someone who's like really into the Holy Spirit and things like that. You know, uh, how many charismatics does it take to change the light bulb? One. Because they already had their hands up, right? So it's just, it's. So, so then, of course, the last one in the series is usually your own tradition. And so, uh, you may not find this that funny, but I thought it was funny. But the, the, so for United Methodists, uh, so, so LGM is a United Methodist church. You know, we would say, how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Change! Ah! So the joke is, Methodists don't like to change. Now, the truth be told, actually, uh, United Methodist Church uh, it, it has probably changed in some denominations, but it's true. You know, I used to pastor at an older United Methodist Church, 
And man, the hardest thing to do was to get them to change. You would change anything, literally anything, and people would not be happy, you know? And brothers and sisters, I think for a lot of us, you know, that's true of us too. We do like some change. I mean, let's be honest, but it's usually the change that we can dictate. And brothers and sisters, maybe you've said that, like, oh, I want things to change. But maybe something happens in your life, something you did not expect, and you're like, whoa, 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 God, I didn't mean that kind of change, right? And sometimes changes that seem negative can be the best kind, right? Maybe there's some people who are stuck in a job that they hate, a job that is kind of pointless, but it's the only job you know, right? And so maybe when you lose that job, you're like, oh, man, this is the worst thing. You know, I remember um, reading this story about this guy. You know, he worked for this company for many, many years, you know, um, just, just in a suit and tie in an office building. And he didn't really like his job, but when he lost his job, he thought it was the worst day of his life. But then, you know, he was like, you know what? I really want to make donuts. And he became this really successful donut guy, right? And And he was like, that was what I thought the worst day of my life, but it actually turned out to be the best, right? Isn't that funny about change, right? You don't always know when it's going to be good for you. But for a lot of us, when we get to a place, when we get to a place where we're kind of comfortable with things, then we don't really want change as much, right? Doesn't it seem that people who tend to be kind of like in the majority right, who tend to have more privileges, who tend to have more money, who tend to have more power, tend to be more conservative, right? Why is that? It's like, why would I want change? Everything's great, right? And so, brothers and sisters, this whole sermon series, I'm just warning you, right, the entire year, we're going to be talking about change because you see it all throughout Scripture, metanoia, Right? Repentance. It is the first words of, of John the Baptist's public ministry, and it is the first words of Jesus' public ministry. Change. Everybody, we're bringing in change. But what about Christians? Are we really changing? This is something that hurts my heart to admit. And if you've been at LGM, you've probably heard this before. But uh, George Barna, who does a lot of, uh, the Barna Institute does a lot of research with the church and society. And what they have found is that if you take, uh, uh, you know, like polls, uh, if you ask questions uh, for people about their life, their lifestyle, do you cheat on your taxes, right? Are you honest? You know, just, just all kinds of things about your life. And you took uh, those questions, and one of the questions you asked is, are you a born-again Christian? If you took that question out and you just looked at what their lives look like, George Barna says, you literally cannot tell the two subsets apart. You literally can't tell the difference between a Christian today in America and a non-Christian. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? Maybe even Saturdays, for many of you, you're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> I already knew that. It's not surprising at all. And, and just to kind of drive the point home, because I've, I've used that, that statistic before, uh, but Greg Boyd wrote this, that he said, research shows that however emotional people may have been when people raised their hand or responded to an altar call, right? You know, Jesus, come into my life. You know, save me. 
He says that fewer than 4% reflected any real change in their lives several years later. Fewer than 4%. Now, of course, this is the point where we give the disclaimer. We say, hey, Pastor Steve, aren't you being a little harsh? Right? Because change is slow sometimes. There's incremental change. You just, things don't change, you know, 180 degrees right away all the time. And that is true. I actually made that point last week in our sermon about prayer. Right? And that is true. But brothers and sisters, let's not let ourselves off the hook. Right? Yes, Christians are still dealing with sin and we are not perfect. That is true. But come on, no change? No change at all? We're exactly like the world? I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said change, right? And brothers and sisters, I want to try to explain. I want to try to give a a, a compelling reason why that might be, right? And so whether you agree with me or disagree with me, I just want to encourage you to have an open heart, right? And so some of the things we're going to talk about, maybe you've heard before. Maybe you think you know, but I want to challenge you and encourage you, even if you've been a part of LGM and you've heard messages like this, to open your heart and mind, to be willing to hear something a little different, because that's how we get to change. Amen? All right, so let's look at the very beginning of uh, Matthew chapter 3. This is the, the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist, like we said. Um, It says, in those days, uh, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. That is very interesting. That's a clue, brothers and sisters, about some of the things we're going to be talking about. Right? He's in the wilderness, right? Middle of nowhere in Judea. So, so some of you guys may know John the Baptist was, uh, he was the son of a priest. Where does all the religious activity happen? Does it happen in the wilderness? No, it happens in Jerusalem. It happens in the temple. But John the Baptist goes outside into the wilderness. That's a clue, right? He is not going to operate in the way that religious things usually happen. Change, right? Something's going to change. And this is his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And brothers and sisters, for most of us, we hear this message and we don't understand it because we have a lot of preconceived notions about what this means. But this, brothers and sisters, is the key to understanding Jesus's message. This message, by the way, is why they killed Jesus. This is why they killed Jesus. You're like, what's the big deal? Repent, say you're sorry, and then you'll get to go to heaven. Brothers and sisters, can I just pause it? That's not what this means. That is not what this means. Nobody would have understood it this way, right? But if you do not understand what this means by kingdom, being at hand, and by the way, they will tell you in in the the ESV that uh, at hand is actually not the proper translation. That's kind of a poetic translation, right? If you look in your your Bibles, there'll be a little asterisk there. And then if you look in the the notes of what that asterisk means or that the little footnote, they'll say it means has come near. That is the literal translation, right? I don't want to judge the the people who translate the Bible, but I think they don't put that there because they think that's going to confuse you. 
Because that makes no sense, right? If you think the kingdom of heaven is the place you go in the clouds after you die. Because has come near is past tense. It means it's something that's already happened. And that makes absolutely no sense to us. So they don't want to confuse you. So they use this poetic license. Is at hand. What does that mean? I don't know. Some spiritual meaning. It means it's already being instituted. It's already here. Right? That's your clue that we're not talking about the cloud city that you go to after you die. Right? And brothers and sisters, do we understand Jesus' message? Maybe if we understood it, we wouldn't have uh, this weird thing where people look at Christians. There, there was a time where people looked at Christians and were like, oh, man, Christians. They're kind of weird. Those are some good people. Or, I mean, maybe the bad people would be like, no, let's kill them because they're too good, you know? But I don't think, brothers and sisters, the original people who heard Jesus' message heard it like this. The whole Christian message is that I just need to believe in Jesus intellectually so that I can go to heaven after I die and be forgiven of my sins. And now, by the way, that means I can live my life however I want. I can live like everyone else. I don't think that's the way people heard it in the beginning, right? And so I want to challenge you, and I want us to maybe even challenge that assumption that we even know what the Gospels mean. I remember whenever somebody would tell me, hey, you should read your Bible, right? You know, this is what people would always tell me. Maybe your pastors, uh, you know, if you grew up in a different church, told you the same thing. They'd say, start with the gospel, you know, start with Matthew or something like that. And I would try it, and kind of midway, I would get really confused. Because what I realized, and maybe didn't realize it, is that I couldn't understand most of the gospel, A lot of the stories made no sense. The parables made no sense. And to be honest, it didn't sound like anything that I was hearing in preaching. Right? And I want to show you why that might be. Brothers and sisters, let me just ask you, the audience participation, what is the gospel about? What is Matthew about? What is Luke, Mark? What is the main message? If you had to distill it into one sentence... The youth group, we're going to be uh, talking about an overview of the Bible. And so I bought this book for David Beck, our, our youth director, uh, that was trying to summarize in one page every book of the Bible. And they would sum it up in one sentence, right? What would your sentence be for the Gospels? What would it be? So, okay, let, let me help you out. What is it about? <laughs> what, what, so I did a word study, by the way, of these words in the Bible, and specifically the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And, I mean, don't you think that the word that appears most, that's probably what it's about, right? One word is a trick, and I'll tell you in a second what what the trick is. (laughs) But, uh, um, so, grace, love, faith, God, kingdom, right? Now, you probably know that kingdom, we're going to be talking about that. So, you're all like, okay, Pastor Steve, I know the answer is kingdom. But let me show you how much the Gospels are about the kingdom, okay? So I think a lot of us would be like, grace, hey, that, that's, that's, that's a great word, right? That's what the Gospels are about, right? You know, Jesus gave his life for us freely. So if we believe in him, we will not die, but, but we will live with him eternally. That's true, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I like grace, 
right? But is that what the Gospels are primarily about? Or maybe it's about love. You're like, oh, Jesus is love, right? Jesus is like the most loving person. You know, he came to love us unconditionally. Reckless love, right? It's all about that. Is that what it's about? Or what about faith? Is it about faith? You're like, oh, no, yeah, faith. It's got to be faith, right? Now, out of all these words, brothers and sisters, I actually was going to have a piece of candy and maybe you know give it to the winner here. Which word do you think appears the most? I did a word study and tried to find how many verses these words appear in. How many people think that it's grace? Show of hands. How many people think it's love? How many people think it's faith? How many people think it's God? Okay, we got some for faith. How many people think it's God? How many people think it's kingdom? Okay. All right. Now, now you guys are, are, I tricked you. It's God. Obviously it's God. Come on. Right? Of course it's God. Right? So the word God appears in 273 verses in the New Testament, right? So, so I know, cause I knew all you guys were gonna be like kingdom, right? <laughs> uh, sorry, sorry, I had to trick you that like that. Okay, so, um, 273 times, right? It, it, it's the most, right? That makes sense, right? We know that. Okay? Now let's narrow it down. Okay, we're like, okay, Pastor Steve, you tricked us. <laughs> of course, God is the, 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 the most common, right? So let's take God out of it. Grace, love, faith, and kingdom. Now I know you guys are all gonna say kingdom, and you're right. But let me show you just how right you are. Okay, so what I did was I used the font size of the number of times that it appears, just so you can kind of see graphically how much Jesus emphasizes certain words, right? And so let's take a look. If you just use the font size of the number of times, right? So let's say, um, you know, just for example, faith appears 36 times. You'll see a 36 font. Does that make sense? Right? Okay. All right. So this is if you use the font size of the number of times it appears. Where did Grace go? <laughs> what? I feel like such a sham. We're living Grace Ministry. Oh, oh. Where did Grace go? It's so small because it's three times. Three times. Only three times in the entire Gospels, and it's all the Gospel of John. The word grace never appears in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Isn't that amazing? Right? Now, don't get me wrong. You, you know, some of you might be saying, but Pastor Steve, the concept of grace is every, of course, of course. <laughs> don't get me wrong. And grace appears a lot in the Bible. It appears 118 times in New Testament verses. Right? Now, some of that is cheating a little bit because grace is used as a greeting. Right? They're like, grace and peace be with you. I, Paul, greet you with grace. Right? So, grace appears almost twice in every letter. Right? So, it appears a lot in the letters. Right? But in the Gospels, only three times. Is that crazy? Right? So, and then kingdom is by far the biggest. That's a 120 font, brothers and sisters. Right? By far, even more than love, even more than faith. And by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, even more than God. There's a reason for that. And, and part of the reason is because Luke and Mark use the phrase, instead of kingdom of the heavens, they say kingdom of God, right? So every time you see kingdom in Mark and Luke, you will also see God, right? Because it's still kind of cheating, right? But in Matthew, the word kingdom appears in 53 verses, and the word God appears in 45 verses. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Let me ask you a question. Now, now for if you've been in LGM in the last three years, we talk a lot about kingdom, so you don't count. <laughs> Just for this question. But let me ask you, growing up in your churches, how many times did you hear a sermon about the kingdom? For me, I'm being honest, I think probably never. Maybe it was about like, like heaven in general and how you get to heaven, right? But actually the concept of the kingdom of God, never, never. How could it be? Are we fundamentally missing Jesus' core message? And then we're surprised when we aren't able to change in the way that God is prescribing for us because we are completely missing the boat, you know, or significantly missing the boat. Again, brothers and sisters, we're not going to change our name to Living Kingdom Ministry. I mean, maybe some of you are like, we should, Pastor Steve. Look how big the font was, right? (laughs) But grace is great. Don't get me wrong. Grace is everywhere, right? But I simply want to point out, where did kingdom go? Because, brothers and sisters, grace is just this nice thing, right? It's really nice in a lot of ways. Oh, I could just receive grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. I like that, right? But kingdom is challenging. Kingdom is sedition. Do you guys know what that means? It means you are challenging another kingdom. If you say the kingdom of God is here, Romans would have heard that as they're trying to start a revolution. They're trying to overthrow us. They would have understood it in that way. And so, <laughs> in uh, the 300s, something weird happened. You know what happened? Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion. And now, Christianity is not the faith of the outsiders, it's the faith of the insiders. So what do you think we did with all the language of this kingdom's got to go? We got rid of it, or we blunted it, or we changed it into something else. We made it, oh, it's when you go to heaven, after you die, right? And so, uh, yeah, just to show you, by the way, yeah, grace only appears three times, love 76 times, so that's a lot. I mean, yeah, it is about love. You know, it is about faith, 60 times, but kingdom, it appears in 120 verses, right? And so, brothers and sisters, what is this kingdom that is so revolutionary, that got Jesus killed? I want to give you other clues in scripture without using the word kingdom to kind of show you that this isn't just a one-shot thing. This isn't Pastor Steve just trying to make a point. And so Richard Rohr, I got this from Richard Rohr, that he pointed out these verses, and, and I thought this was very interesting. Um, let's take a look at Matthew chapter nine, 19, verses 28. This is when, uh, do you guys remember that Jesus is talking about, you know, the people who've given up everything, that they are going to be rewarded, right? That, that, that something really radical is going to happen, that people who've given up so much are going to receive hundreds times more in the world to come. And Peter's like, Jesus, we gave up everything. How about us? Oh, we're going to get the hookups, right? And this is what Jesus says to him. Truly, I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why they picked 12 disciples, by the way, right? Um, So in the new world, 
So this is uh, kind of an interesting word um, that uh, uh, it, it only appears uh, in Jesus's uh, sayings. I think that it only appears a few times, but Jesus coined this phrase. It's part of the reason why we have this little um, asterisk there, because we're not really sure how to fully translate. It's kind of weird, right? But the word in Greek, you don't, you don't need to know this, but just, 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 yeah, just so you can hear it. It's polygenesis, polygenesis. What word do you hear, though, in that? Genesis. Genesis, right? So uh, in your Bibles, they, they probably have an asterisk there, and it says, or regeneration, right? Regeneration. A new genesis, a recreation, right? So Jesus is trying to recreate the world. He is trying to create a new world, but not just a new world, a new world order, a new way of doing things. Okay, let's take a look at Acts chapter 3, verse 21. Um, so this is part of Peter's address. So Peter, you know, after uh, Jesus is resurrected, Peter matures in his understanding of who Jesus is. And he's up there and he's preaching. And he's giving this message about Jesus' gospel. And, and he says this thing where he says, whom heaven must receive. So Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Right? So... Peter's trying to say that this is the whole message all along, right? Uh, this, the literal translation for this word, uh, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce in Greek. It's a very complicated word. Uh, but it means universal restoration. Again, the restoration, the regenesis of all things, right? And so for Christ followers, if we think that the gospel is about, hey, you can just kind of like, like intellectually believe in some of these things, but nothing in your life will actually change. We don't get it. We don't get it, right? Everything is supposed to change, right? Okay, last one uh, in terms of not Matthew, and then we'll go back to Matthew, right? So do you guys remember uh, this parable that he gives? Um, and by the way, by the way, uh, just to go back for a second, with Matthew 19, uh, where he's talking about how you're going to get so much more if you give up for me, the way he ends that discourse is he says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's the context. That is the new world order. The, the people who have power, gonna lose it. People do, who don't have power are gonna get it. That's the new world order. Right? And we'll, we'll get more into that, especially next week. Um, but Matthew 5, 37 through 38. Um, so uh, this is when people are criticizing Jesus because his disciples don't fast like everyone else. And, and so this is what, what Jesus, uh, his response is. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And so brothers and sisters, just taking all of this together, what are we trying to say? There is a way that we look at the world, our worldview, a way that we are living in this world that for some reason Christians don't think that's supposed to change. The fundamental way you live in this world. Just certain beliefs change. Right? And so then you get people who say things like, oh, Christians, we're not perfect. We're just forgiven. Right? 
And brothers and sisters, how we do this is not uh, going to be as simple as trying. So please do not try to skip ahead and think that I'm trying to tell you, oh, you know, we got this wrong. We're going to go back to works righteousness. It is absolutely not work, works righteousness. Please do not think that that's where I'm going with this, okay? Right? We are saved only by what Jesus did for us. I want to be very, very clear, right? But your definition of salvation maybe is slightly different than mine. Right? Is it just that Jesus is coming to save us from dying and going to hell? Yes, it's that. But what about all this? What about this jacked up world that we see? Did Jesus want to change that too? Because when you see these words, polygenesis, a new world order, when you see the word universal restoration, the whole universe will change. Not just your little individual life. Everything is supposed to change. And for us to think that what God's kingdom, which means, by the way, God is king, and then he's going to start making this world the way it's supposed to be. right? And us, as citizens of that kingdom, as sons and daughters of the Most High God, our lives are supposed to look like his. Everything is going to change. Right? And so, I think when we look at this, you know, I think what a lot of us are doing is we are taking new wine, a new message, and we're like, oh yeah, that's a different message than other religions. Jesus died for you. Right? It's amazing. Grace. That's great. But we're putting it into old wineskins. Do you know there's Christians who think you can still kill? Right? That that's okay? Because that's what the world does. Right? Hey, there might be some reason you just gotta kill someone, you know? You know, there's Christians who think it's okay for us to accumulate all the wealth for ourselves, right? And not share with anyone who's poor. We are perfectly okay with that. But I believe in Jesus, right? I believe in God, right? Brothers and sisters, are we missing the point? Jesus didn't want to just change your individual belief. He wants to change everything, the whole system, right? So let's go back then to, to uh, uh, our message here. Um, For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So brothers and sisters, If you have a road that is crooked, how do you make it straight? Can you just do that with a little paint job, right? No, that is major reconstruction, right? You're going to have to shut the whole thing down. You're going to have to start from scratch. You're going to have to wreck that entire road, pull it all up, and start again, right? And so when John the Baptist comes out and, he, and, and scripture tells us that he's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make the, his path straight. Don't think, brothers and sisters, that's just a band-aid. That is complete revolution and reconstruction, right? In uh, the Hebrew, uh, the, the, the word for straight, it, it's about making the road so that God can travel on it. So that God can come into your life. And so there is an aspect in Hebrew that means smooth, right? 
Maybe some of your lives, there's, there's all kinds of things blocking your road for God to fully come in and reign. And what this is saying, to prepare the way from the Lord means we got to tear some of that stuff down, right? And then there's others of us, we have potholes all over our lives. we got to fill some of that in, right? That's what it's talking about here. And, and let's take a look at um, verse 4. So when we hear about John, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. We already made that point. John the Baptist is an outsider. He's a religious outsider. He's a societal outsider. He doesn't look like the establishment, right? People who look like the establishment, they had nice robes, right? They're, they're really, they, 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 they had like, like the well-groomed beards. They looked the part of a religious person. They looked perfectly respectable. John the Baptist looked like a crazy dude, like a homeless dude, like nobody you would want to trust, right? He rejected all that. He's the son of a priest. He could have had the robes, but he said, no, I'm not going to be a part of that order, right? And he's not going into the city yet, right? He's like, you got to come out of the city, Right? He's not going into Jerusalem yet. He's like, you got to come out of Jerusalem. I'm not going to go into and just try to patch your religion and patch your way of living this life. you got to come out from that. And you have to repent, which means to turn 180 degrees. That's what repentance is. To change your perspective. To change the way that you look at this world. Everything must change. I heard the story, Dallas Willard tells a story in The Divine Conspiracy of a pilot who uh, thought they were uh, ascending very quickly, right? Like thought they were going up. And so they made this move where they just shut up, but they actually crashed into the ground. And the reason was, is that that uh, um, pilot was flying upside down. Now, some of you may be thinking like, like I was thinking the same thing. I was like, what? That's so weird. How could someone not know that they're upside down? And so this is the thing. I, so I looked it up. I was like, is this really a thing? Did this really happen? And so it's called spatial disorientation. So what happens is that when a plane is going really fast, you actually can't feel gravity anymore the way most of us experience it. Right? So you're probably thinking, if I'm upside down in a plane, wouldn't you feel like the seatbelt tugging on you, right? You'd be like, well, obviously I'm upside down, right? But when you're going really, really fast, people can't feel that, so they don't know. Then you're like, okay, but can't you see that you're upside down? So this is the thing. Most of the times when plane crashes happen this way, and it's, it's happened a lot, it's one of the major causes for plane crashes, is spatial disorientation. And so what happens is usually there's bad weather, right? So it's kind of hazy out, you know, or there's fog. And most often it happens when you're flying over the ocean, right? So it's kind of hazy out and you think you're flying right side up, but you're really upside down and you look up and you think you see a sky, but it's really the ocean, right? And so then the last reason why it happens is that people, for whatever reason, when they see that, um, Sometimes your instruments malfunction, but nowadays they have all kinds of instruments that they tell you, do not trust your senses, trust the instrument, 
Look at the instrument. But if it malfunctions, sometimes it still happens. Or with inexperienced pilots, right? Or somebody who's just really tired and they kind of panic in a moment and, and they're just kind of in a tailspin for whatever reason. Like maybe a wind flips them over, right? And then they're like, oh, I got to pull up. And then they crash right into the ocean, right? I think, brothers and sisters, this is part of the, uh, the, the reason why Jesus has come. Because sometimes we call the kingdom. I have a friend, a pastor, that when he talks about the kingdom of God, he said, he's like, oh, you're preaching on, on the kingdom of God? Steve, word. Awesome. You're preaching about the upside down world, right? And that's how I used to think of it. What if, what if, you just, just stay with me for a second. I know this is going to be kind of weird. What if we're already upside down? Oh, <gasps> I didn't know. I didn't know. What if? The kingdom of God, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Changing everything, flipping everything, is actually trying to make it right side up. <laughs> Someone was like, oh, you're really shocked. Oh, it's more effective than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, let me give you an example. Now, by the way, remember the plane, right? If you were in the cockpit with that person, it's foggy inside. You, you know, you're tired, you're anxious, you're, you're flying really fast. You can't see or sense anything other than what's in that cockpit. And many of us are living life this way. We can't see it. But if you could get some perspective, right? If you were able to, you know, clear up the weather a little bit, right? You know, uh, defrost the windows. Get a little perspective. Maybe you could see that you were actually flying upside down. Let me give you an example of this upside down. Right? Now, if somebody wrongs you, how do we fix that? In this world, this is what we do. If someone hits you, you hit them back, right? We have a word for that or a phrase. It's very common. No one questions this. But brothers and sisters, remember, I'm trying to tell you, you've been living upside down. Think about this for a moment. Seriously, think about this. Think about how insane this phrase is. But we use it all the time and nobody questions it. We say, well, you know what they say, you've got to fight fire with fire. You got to fight fire with fire? That's not how you fight fire. That's insane, right? What happens if you fight fire with fire? You get more fire, right? But this is what we do. If someone hates you, you feel completely entitled entitled to hate them back. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to hate them more. It's insane. We fight fire with fire. We fight hate with hate. What do you get? More hate. There was this guy, Martin Luther King Jr., Christ follower, Christian pastor. And he was like, that's not how you do it. That's insane, right? This is how you fight hate, love. When they hurt you, when they spit on you, when they send their attack dogs against you, when they unleash the fire hoses on you, you don't respond. You love them. You bless them. You pray for them. And in this upside-down world, all the upside-down people are like, that makes no sense. (laughs) But it actually worked, right? And Martin Luther King Jr., that was his most consistent message. When people would curse or persecute, people like, you know what? There are brothers and sisters. They're just a little sick right now. We have to help heal them. But we're not going to heal them. That's how we do it. Right? 
So just just for a second, let's bring it back to the real world. Let's bring it back to the 21st century. You know, there was a time in this country where the whole Black Lives Matter movement was really building momentum. Right? I mean, it really looked like something was going to change. A few years back, you guys remember this? And there was one event that probably sabotaged it more than anything else. In New York City, there was a man who walked up to a police officer, and he believed in the Black Lives Matter what he decided to do because he was so angry about the way black people have been treated in this country. He went up to an innocent police officer just sitting in his car and shot him dead. I'm going to fight fire with fire. Did it work? Did it work? No. Brothers and sisters, have we been blind to the fact that there are people in this world that they'll tell you, hey, if you want to Fix economic disparity. This is what you got to do. Give tax breaks to the wealthiest people. <laughs> Give them more money, and then we'll fix inequality. What? It's insane. It's crazy. But this is the world we're living in. Right? So, brothers and sisters, I, I just want to, you know, we're going to talk a lot more about this, but I'm trying to convince you. I'm trying to show you, maybe, just maybe, the assumptions you've always made about this world are not correct. And God wants to change those things. And he will. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor Steve, everything you're talking about is a pipe dream. Right? Everything you're talking about sounds good on paper, but it can't actually change. By the way, Martin Luther King Jr. helped change the So this is what we know about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Jesus used, would use all these parables. He would talk about the kingdom so much, so hard for us to understand this, so hard for us to get this, so he would just use story pictures, parables, right? And so a couple of parables he used. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts really small, and you just plant it in a field. And before you know it, it's the biggest tree in the field, which is not true. It's not the biggest, but mustard trees are big. Right? They're actually kind of like bushes. And what people say about mustard seeds, in the ancient world, they're, they're, they, you can look at old texts where they talk about mustard seeds, and they will tell you two things about it. They're like, mustards, uh, mustard seeds, uh, mustard is used for medicinal purposes. It can heal you, but you will not want to plant one in your garden. You know why? Because it's going to take over the whole garden. That's what mustard plants do. You cannot stop it. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens is like this. It is like a a little bit of yeast that a woman hid in the corner of the dough. And then the person didn't know it, and so they start kneading the dough. And that little bit of yeast just works its way through the entire dough, right? The kingdom of God in those stories kind of sounds like a virus, doesn't it? It's just unstoppable. And there's some of that. You cannot stop the kingdom. So Jesus didn't worry. Are you going to kill me? Still not going to stop the kingdom, right? Disciples, you can kill us. Not going to stop the kingdom. It's going to go on, right? There is something that Jesus spawned that is still going on today. Even those statistics you hear should not discourage you if you understand the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, we're talking about worldviews. I want to just end with these three different kind of worldviews that we have. 
right? Some of us, we have just been living this way, and it's hard for us to see that this is the, the way that we've been living. Um, so one worldview that many of us live in is uh, the... Sorry, my, my thing went out for a second. Can you guys change it to the three worldviews? All right, thank you. So the first worldview is that we live in an indifferent world, right? So an indifferent world means it's like there's no God, right? And by the way, you can believe in God and still live in an indifferent world. This is basically everything's up to you. Everything's just random chance, dumb luck, right? And if things happen, well, you just got to figure it out. This is what we call the secular worldview. And many of us live in this all the time. There's a second kind of world. And the second worldview is that the world is a hostile place, right? And sometimes the most devout Christians, the most devout religious people live in a hostile world. Oh, you know what? God is out to get me. I need to appease God, right? I need to do these things so that God doesn't punish me. Whenever something bad goes wrong, you know, you interpret it from the basis of your sin, right? You're like, well, I probably did something to deserve that, you know, or... Or, you know, the world is out to get me. That's just the world we live in. The world is an oppressive, evil place, right? And many of us might live there. And the third worldview is that the world is a benevolent place. There is a good God who loves you for no other reason. It's not because you deserve it. He loves you because he is love. And your identity as his child is just grace. You just got to receive that, you know? Which world do you live in, brothers and sisters? Because I think most of the world, up to the point that Jesus came, lived in probably um, the hostile world. Maybe some people are indifferent, but I mean, let's be honest, guys. A lot of us, we say like, oh, well, Pastor Steve, what you're talking about is a belief in God. I'm not talking about that. Atheism is a very, very recent phenomenon in, in, in human history. Right? It's a modern phenomenon. There's actually not that many atheists. Right? 99.9% of the world in all of human history believed in God. Right? So just saying you believe in God doesn't change that much. You can still live as if everything depends on you. Right? And if you live in that world long enough, you start living in a hostile world. You start living in a world where every mistake you make, you're, you're like, oh my gosh, God, how could you let this happen? Right? You think everything is supposed to go a certain way, and it drives you crazy, it drives you mad. So Richard Rohr said this. He said, if you want to know if you're living in a benevolent universe as opposed to an indifferent or hostile universe, do not ask the question, do you believe in God? It's not important, at least for this. But ask this question. Are you anxious? That's a better question. If you live in a world where God is king, over everything. What Jesus and John the Baptist said is absolutely true. The kingdom of God isn't just coming. I mean, it's going to be fully realized. Let's be clear. There's still a lot of jacked up stuff in this world. But he's already here. The kingdom of God began with Jesus coming. He is the kingdom of God. Jesus, who... I mean, in some ways, you know, the flesh didn't want to go to the cross, but he was willing. Many, many disciples have come in his footsteps, and they did not fear death. They did not fear what this world could do to them. Why? Because they lived in a world where God is king. 
And God reigned over all of their emotional life, their economics, right? Because, I mean, let's be honest. If you live in an indifferent or hostile world, how do we respond to this world? You know what you got to do? you got to armor up. you got to just live for security, right? You just have to store up all the money and all the stuff and just try to make your life as safe as possible because you know what? They're out to get you, right? Something's going to come get you. So you have to live your life always being afraid, right? Or maybe for, for some of us, I mean, brothers and sisters, I have to be honest. I've had a major anxiety problem in my life. And the way that I lived in this, this world is, you know, I come up here on Sundays and talk about believing in God, but really, I just would live with this crippling anxiety. What if this goes wrong? What if I don't get this done? What if something bad happens to my kids? All of this stuff. And I'm just living life continually like this. Like, Do you ever have a day like that, brothers and sisters? I mean, seriously, that's more descriptive than any word I can use. Just, We all know what that's like. That's not the kingdom of God. Not fully. Right? God wants to give you a different kind of reality. So I just want to end here. We'll get into more stuff. Uh, some, I, I wanted to do this today, but we didn't have time. We'll do it next week. So remind me. Someone remind me. I want to explain why it says kingdom of the heavens. Maybe some of you guys were wondering. Why is it kingdom of the heavens in Matthew and kingdom of God in the other ones? Isn't that confusing? Isn't heaven where you go after you die? Right? We'll talk about that next week. Okay? We'll get back. Um, but for now, I want to end with this. I believe that if we're going to get out of this worldview that we're in, part of the reason is we have no perspective. We're just, we're moving so fast in life, right? We're like those pilots in the cockpit, and you're moving at a really fast rate of speed. You don't have a second to think about what your worldview is, right? You're just going, 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 going. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. You have no perspective, right? Now, the way you get perspective is there's an instrument that shows you, hey, I know it doesn't feel like it. I know it doesn't look like it, but you're actually flying upside down. Maybe that's the Bible. Maybe that's Jesus, right? Maybe it's this message that's telling you, you know, you think your life is the way it's supposed to, but let's be honest. When you take a step back, is this the life? Is this abundant life? Is this life to the full? Do you look and reflect Jesus? Not in a way that's supposed to make you feel bad, but brothers and sisters, wouldn't it be awesome to be Jesus? Let's think about that. Dallas Willard used to ask people this question because he'd see so many dour Christians. Christians just walking around just sad all the time or mad or just, you know, the world sucks, right? And, and he asked this pastor this question once. He said, hey, we're supposed to be like Jesus, right? Do you think Jesus was sad? Do you think Jesus was anxious? Do you think Jesus was depressed? I think it must be wonderful to be Jesus, right? God's my daddy, right? Our father who is in heaven. Oh my gosh, that is wonderful. He lived with that in his heart, in his nervous system. Jesus didn't panic. Jesus didn't have panic attacks, right? Jesus didn't have anxiety. And one thing Jesus did every day, guys, let's be very clear. This imagery is intentional. The Bible tells us before he would go and start healing people, before he'd go and start preaching, he would go into the lonely places, remove himself from this world, 
so he could just be with God. If we're going to have a chance, brothers and sisters, we need way more silence and stillness than we're getting to get some perspective, right? And so let's just take a moment. And I want to encourage you today. If this message is going to go down deep into your life, it's very simple. God wants to bring you into a different kind of world where he is the king. He's in complete control. You don't need to worry anymore. It's such incredible good news, guys. But for that to really go into your life, to go deep, you're going to need some silence. So I want to encourage you guys, have some good silence today, right? I know it's exciting. We're going to get bubble tea. We're going to eat. Right? We're going to hang out with people. But maybe when you're at home, just have some silence with God. Let's have some perspective, right? And so, yeah, let, let's just take a moment to, uh, praise team, you guys can come up. Let's just be still before the Lord. Let's just let that simple truth go in. God is king. We've been flying upside down. But the good news is, there is a kingdom that is available to you. It is at hand. Where's your hand, brothers and sisters? It's right here. The kingdom of God is right here. So let's just take a moment to let that message go in. God, we pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, God, for your kingdom to reign as we learn to repent, as we learn to change our perspective and our worldview. God, I pray over everyone in this room for honesty and humility. Honesty for us to be able to see that our life is not the way that you would fully desire it to be. We have been flying upside down. And humility to realize that we cannot get this answer on our own. So Lord, we cry out, come and save us again. Send your kingdom, send your spirit to convince us of who we really are in you. We are your children. We are citizens of your kingdom. We don't need to be afraid anymore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise for worship.